Sunday morning studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you flag them and get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 5, we'll be looking specifically at the first 10 verses, but we want to pick up the context a little bit by jumping back into chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Speaking of that early church, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And they kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, breathed his last. And so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. That day, the custom even in Israel to this day. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Let's pray together. <laughs> Some of you might be thinking about the exits at this moment. I mean, <laughs> how was church this morning? Well, four people got saved, six rededicated their life, and God killed four people, you know, so. Hmm. Father, thank You for being our God, and thank You for being our Father. Thank You for making a place for us in Your Son under the shadow of Your wing. Thank You for how close You are to us and how protective You are of us, Lord. We thank You that You're speaking, God, and we thank You for this book that we hold in our hands right now and the privilege of being able to have this printed Word on a page to be lifted off and by Your Holy Spirit to be given a living place in our relationship with You, our service, Lord, unto You, to the world, 
and in our relationship, Lord. And so we ask that you would do that, that you would speak to us from this passage very personally, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When we look at the early church in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, I am convinced that we're seeing the early church, and indeed the church, the Christian church, through all of the ages at its absolute purest and its most simple and most beautiful, beautiful authenticity and and innocence. And what is described of the early church there in those verses is, I think, the closest thing to the kingdom of God being properly represented in the world in all of church history and in all of the entire record of the Scriptures. And all of the persecution and all of the threats that were meted out against them for simply being Christians only served to take that early church and to drive them deeper into God and into their relationship with God and deeper into prayer, deeper into fellowship, deeper into their understanding of the Word of God, deeper into worship and into faith. And all that persecution and all of those threats did was just to make them stronger Christians and bolder Christians and deeper Christians. And it deepened not only their relationship with God, but also their relationship with one another. And you notice what we're told in those verses, in verse 32, that they were of one heart and one soul. This was a group of Christians who were deeply united with one another, that sense of all for one and one for all. And verse 32, whatever people owned personally and individually, they readily shared in order to meet the needs of other Christians. And there was a concern for the physical and the material needs of one another, willingness uh, to meet those needs. And there's no doubt that in that early churches that many of these Jews were giving their life to Christ. They were trusting in Jesus as their Savior, that as a result of that and recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah, promised Savior of the world, that they lost a position in their home. They lost jobs. They lost uh, wealth, cut out of inheritances, and so forth. And so there was great need that was a part of that uh, early church that was largely Jewish at its beginning. The apostles were told in verse 33, they preached the resurrection of Jesus with great power. In other words, the power power and the witness of the Lord was being added to their preaching. It was a time of great spiritual power uh, within the church. And in verse 33, God was pleased with all of it, and He poured His blessings. He poured His favor and His grace upon all of it as well. Verses 34 to 37, some of the Christians, excuse me, even sold their homes, not only released kind of liquid assets into the need, but then began to take these hard assets, and they gave uh, the proceeds from the selling. It takes something to sell your home and then to give those proceeds away. This was the heart of the early church. They sold even these, their homes, 
land in order to meet the needs, and they gave the proceeds then to the apostles who then matched the resources that were being given with the needs of the people. And I think it's very important to realize that none of this was mandatory. None of this was commanded. None of this was legislated. You don't see any of that in the passage. All of it was um, completely voluntary. It was all a work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit moving people's hearts to give in this way. And a particular man is mentioned here by the name of Barnabas in this regard. And it's easy, I think, to forget as we study the Bible, to forget that Barnabas wasn't always known as Barnabas. We know him as Barnabas because that's almost all we know him as in the book of Acts. And he's uh, heavily represented in the book of Acts. But he used to be called Joses, as we're told there in the passage. Barnabas became his nickname, and it stuck. Nicknames, for the most part, are given when somebody notices a quirk in another person or something virtuous in another person. A nickname then comes out of that, and then it sticks if it represents the person. And Barnabas, his name means a son of comfort, a son of encouragement. The, the apostles, when they looked at him and said, we're not calling you Josies anymore, that doesn't fit you at all. Everywhere you go, you comfort, you encourage people. You're a son of encouragement. That's what we're going to call you, and that's the name that was given to him. And it's a beautiful name and a beautiful kind of person. And Barnabas isn't extinct now in, in the body of Christ. There's many Barnabases in this room, and not everybody is that. Not everybody is that by personality and by the Spirit of God, but he was. And it's a beautiful thing, beautiful man with a very, very... Uh, special gift, and it's a special gift in God's people even today. It's at this point in time in the early church that Satan reassesses the effectiveness of his attack upon the early church and, he, and the instruments that he's using to uh, try and destroy the early church and, and uh, the methodologies that he's using against it. Up to this time, he's been using threats and persecution in an attempt to destroy Christianity in its infancy. And clearly, as we read these early chapters of the book of Acts, it is not working at all. All it did and all it ever does in church history is to make stronger Christians, to make Christians who are more united and more committed to God and more committed to one another. And so Satan recognizes that I'm not going to destroy this thing called the body of Christ and Christianity through threats or through persecution. It just simply doesn't work. And so he changes his tactics entirely at this moment in time, and he decides that if you can't beat them, let's join them. In other words, if you can't defeat them from without, then perhaps there's a way to defeat them from within. And it's important to notice in chapter 5, verse 3, that what happens in this incident with Ananias and Sapphira, it happens and because it has its origin in Satan. He is the one behind their hypocrisy. His aim was to corrupt the church, that early church, from within in order to ultimately destroy it and discredit its witness before the world. And the Bible teaches that a little leaven leavens the whole lump and if he could successfully introduce this thing called hypocrisy into the church, 
then he knew that it would either need to be confronted and removed by that early church, or it would quickly spread among the people, and it would become the norm. And I'll tell you, wherever there's a true work of God's Holy Spirit going on, Satan will always try to corrupt it in that way. Now, this methodology of Satan is a very, very old one, but sometimes it can be so old that uh, we even forget that it's one of his methodologies, and we need to be reminded of that. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, there's a record of an odd kind of prophet by the name of Balaam who was hired by the king of Moab, a king by the name of Balak, to come and pronounce curses upon the children of Israel. The children of Israel in that book of Numbers have finished their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They are now in earnest making their way to the promised land, and they're going to this time enter into the promised land. And as they're making their way toward Israel, toward uh, the promised land proper, they're making their way through these various kingdoms from where they were wandering in the wilderness. And each one of these various Gentile kingdoms, as they were making their way to the promised land, would rise up and attack them, and God's favor would come upon the children of Israel. They would defeat their enemies, one after the other after the other, and now they finally come to Moab. And Moab was located in what is modern-day Jordan, that section of Jordan to the south that is to the, immediately to the east of the Dead Sea. And Balak realizes that without some kind of help from God, he has no hope at all of withstanding the children of Israel. And so he calls for Balaam to come in. He's heard something about him being a prophet of God to come in and pronounce curses upon the children of Israel so that Balak might then defeat them uh, in military battle. And so Balaam comes, and as he uh, approaches then the, the king of Moab, Balak, and he begins to pronounce these uh, what was intended to be curses upon the children of Israel. Four times he opens his mouth with the intent of that happening, and each time God filled his mouth with a blessing. He couldn't curse these people even if he wanted to. Balak was incensed. He did offer this man as much money as he could ever want in order to curse the children of Israel, and all that came out of Balaam's mouth were these blessings. And so he said, I hired you to curse them, and You've blessed them these many times, and it looked like Balaam now wasn't going to get paid by Balak, and so he took the king aside, and he told him the only way that Israel could be cursed and destroyed. And in essence, he told Balak, listen, you will never successfully defeat these people from without. You will never curse them from without. Their God is greater than all, and He will turn every curse into a blessing as you have seen. The only way you can ever get them and defeat them is to get them to bring a curse upon themselves. They can never be defeated from without. These people of the true and the living God can only bring defeat upon themselves. He said, here's what I propose that you do. Their God is a holy God. He's a jealous God, and He won't share His affections with any other idols. And so go and take your young Moabitess women 
and have them go in and seduce the men of, of Israel, and as they're in this place heated in passion and, and all of it, have the Moabitess girls bring out the idols of the Moabites and then compel these men to join them in their worship of uh, Baal and of these, uh, of these false gods, and their God who is a jealous God will be forced to respond with a righteous anger. And Balak did that. It was successful, and 24,000 among the children of Israel died as a result of the plague. I think it's important for us to realize what, what we are prone to forget, but what our enemy is never, ever uh, prone to forget, and that is that we can never be defeated by opposition from without. We can only be defeated when we allow into our midst and into our lives what our holy Lord must bring judgment upon. And that's a wonderful truth to realize. I can never, ever be defeated, not even by the devil himself. Nothing can defeat me from without. The only way that I can be defeated is if I bring it upon myself by what I allow into my heart and thus forcing God to chasten or to judge me. Now, let's notice a few specifics of this particular passage uh, in chapter 5. Ananias, his name means God is gracious. Sapphira, her word, uh, her name comes from the jewel sapphire, and so it, it came to mean the Aramaic beautiful. And so, like Barnabas, they sold a piece of land. They brought a portion of the proceeds to lay it the apostles' feet and to be used in assisting the poor Christians. Nothing wrong at all, per se, with doing that. The problem is that they gave a portion of the proceeds to the apostles while giving the appearance of giving the total proceeds. So this is hypocrisy. And the Greek word that is used for, for hypocrisy, our word uh, hypocrisy. It meant in the ancient world to wear a mask and to be an actor. To be an actor in those days was a little bit simpler than it, uh, today. Uh, you were on the Greek stage for the most part, and you had multiple roles. You would have like a smiling face, and you would have a sad face. And so, or whatever character, multiple characters you might be playing, you would simply wear a mask and then uh, begin to portray that particular person. And so, it came so it means that, to be an actor, to wear a mask, to represent myself outwardly is one thing, when inwardly I am something else entirely. And that's what the word uh, hypocrite describes. Something else, one thing outwardly that I portray myself as while being something entirely different inwardly or privately. I don't think it's any accident that the account of Barnabas's giving and that of the giving of Ananias and Sapphira are linked so closely within uh, the narrative. I'm convinced that when Ananias and Sapphira witnessed the giving of Barnabas uh, to the apostles of the sum of money, the sacrifice of selling a piece of land, and doubtless as he gave that money, it was received with appreciation as people might have witnessed that going on. They esteemed him as a deeply spiritual kind of person. He became very large in their eyes, and I think they wanted to be viewed in the same way, but without quite making the same sacrifice. So they want to give the appearance of having given the full proceeds of the land that they sold without actually having done so. 
Peter, in verses 3 and 4, he exposes Ananias' sin, and this is one of the beautiful pictures of a word of knowledge in the Scriptures. A word of knowledge is a gift of the Holy Spirit that God gives to people where He provides them with a fact supernaturally, a piece of knowledge that they would not otherwise know except He revealed it to them. And God uses His spiritual gifts in a lot of ways within the body of Christ, and in this case, in order to protect its purity. So He reveals to Peter what it is that's going on here. This isn't on the up and up. This isn't the same thing as happened just the day before or however much earlier with Barnabas. This is something different, and He revealed that what was going on was hypocrisy, and what it was was a lie. And so Peter confronted him with the hypocrisy and, uh, and that sin of lying, that outward lying, and giving the appearance of being and doing one thing outwardly while being and doing something else entirely inwardly. Very important to understand in the passage, especially if the passage is new to you, that there, it was not that he kept back part of the money that upset God here. Uh, Peter explains to him, you didn't have to give anything. It was all yours. You could have sold the land, kept all of the proceeds to yourself, which again shows us that this giving that was going on in the early church in this way was not compulsory. That was, it was completely voluntary. It wasn't some kind of a project that the apostles came up with. Peter said, you could have given something, you could have given nothing, you could have, all you needed to do was be honest about uh, what you were and, and, and how you were giving, uh, giving here. His sin was in lying to the Holy Spirit in the hypocrisy. And of course, some lies in life are verbal, and other lies you don't have to speak in order to lie. Some lies in life are nonverbal, and hypocrisy, to live a life of hypocrisy is to live a nonverbal lie. It's possible uh, to lie even without speaking today, as, as Ananias did here, by deliberately giving the appearance of being one thing outwardly, one thing in one environment, and then being something else entirely different in the other environments of my life. And the application for us is to be one thing in church and one thing in a spiritual environment, and then to be a completely different kind of person all the rest of the week or the other parts of the week, uh, whether at work or at home or at school. That's hypocrisy. And for a moment of time here related to Ananias, in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of the public, he was really viewed as a generous giver, but in the eyes of God, uh, they were hypocrites. And God sent it upon them, Ananias. Uh, the last, things he, last words he ever heard in this life was, you've not lied to men, but to God. He falls down and he breathes his last. Now, please understand that Peter didn't kill him. <laughs> Sometimes it looked like Peter, wow, Peter killed them. Peter didn't. I'm convinced that Peter was as shocked at Ananias collapsing and dying as everybody else that was in the room. So he falls down dead, and a very sobering scene. We're told that fear came upon everyone who witnessed it. Well, I believe that. I think all of us have experienced um, situations in our life where something happens, maybe in the larger body of Christ or in an individual Christian's life, and we just think, wow, that is so heavy, and it can really 
put us into a state of mourning uh, for a number of days and even weeks related to that. This really impacted the, uh, the people that saw it. The young men then arose. They wrapped him up in some kind of cloth, carried him out, and then buried him. Now, Sapphira comes about three hours later. She has no idea what's happened to her uh, husband. And so, here she comes into that same room, <clears throat> this beautiful woman. If she grew into her name, she has no idea that at this very moment she is a widow. She has no idea what's happened in, in the uh, events that occurred earlier, and perhaps there's a bit of a buzzing going on within the room, some whispering as she makes her way into the room. She might even be thinking that um, the whole thing that she and her husband has put together has been effective, that they're whispering about the fact of how generous and how magnanimous they are in terms of being givers in the early church and, and so forth. And Peter poses the question, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And I think there was tremendous tension in that room. Peter is a, attempting to give her, it's all grace. He's attempting to give her one more opportunity to back away from the position that she and her husband have, have taken here in, in, in what they've uh, done, to confess the sin and to move away from it rather than persist in it. And Sapphira, she held on to the lie. Yes, we sold it for that much. And then Peter confronted her with her lie. And she was also smitten, and she died and was carried out. I, I don't think that this means at all what happened here in God's judgment. It means that Ananias and Sapphira were not Christians. I'm personally very convinced that they were, and that the fact that uh, they were is an important lesson to us as Christians. What we have here is an expression, number one, of God's obvious, very intense dislike of this thing called hypocrisy, and number two, of His determination to keep His church free from it, His determination to keep Christianity from becoming tainted by the sin and certainly from becoming known for the sin. It is interesting to note in the Bible that very often when God was starting to do something new in the history of His people, He would make it a point to drive home how important holiness is to Him among His people and to drive home the point that deliberate lifestyle disobedience to His commandments always ends in defeat, and it always ends in chastening. For instance, when the children of Israel came into the promised land under Joshua, Achan took and he stole some of the uh, loot or some of the booty that was a result of the conquest of Jericho. And God then judged Achan as a result of his hypocrisy, as a result of his sin. It was the beginning of a new chapter among God's people. God said, I'm going to use this opportunity to remind them of how important uh, it is not to walk in hypocrisy and how important holiness is. The very beginning of King David's reign in Jerusalem is they're transporting, incorrectly transporting, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem on a cart drawn by oxen instead of being carried by the religious leaders of the Jews. One of the oxen slips. 
The Ark of the Covenant that's in the cart begins to tumble back and forth. Uzzah puts his hand out, and he steadies the Ark, and then God smites him right on the spot. Was Uzzah guilty of greater sin than David or any of the other religious leaders? He wasn't. But God was making a point through his life um, that this isn't, we're not going to begin your kingdom, David, by not transporting the Ark of the Covenant properly. It needs to be transported according to the Word of God. So find out what the Word of God says about this, because I don't want you starting your reign just thinking that you can make all of your decisions based upon whatever you think rather than consulting my Word. And the point was driven home very dramatically and in a powerful way. And God never does this kind of thing unless it's necessary. And then here in this passage, He does the same thing at the very outset, the early history of the church in smiting Ananias and Sapphira, and He's simply driving home the same point once again. And so Ananias, his name means God is gracious, but here God wants to teach him and to teach the early church that he is gracious, more gracious than we could ever describe, but that he is holy as well. Now, our passage teaches us and it reminds us, number one, that hypocrisy is the device of Satan and that it's a danger to any work of the Holy Spirit. And that's always a good reminder, always an important reminder, that hypocrisy always has its origin. Any, even the slightest amount of hypocrisy that I allow into my life, the slightest amount of acting that I engage in as a Christian, where I present myself as one thing in spiritual environments and something else entirely in other environments, that is always in the, in the life of a child of God, always has its origin in Satan. It's one of his devices and that it is a danger to the work of God's Holy Spirit. It's an attempt by the devil here to destroy the early church in its infancy, and Satan is, was just determined to wipe out every witness of Jesus in the whole world, not only 2,000 years ago, but even today. And hypocrisy and the use of hypocrisy is one of the most powerful weapons that he uses for the simple reason that because the life that Jesus calls people into, the Christian life, that He calls us into, and the life that hypocrisy produces are two entirely different things. And clearly, God does not want even the slightest hint of hypocrisy to mark any church or any life that's associated with His name, because to do that is to live a life that is a lie, that is a deception. It's divorced from reality when, in fact, He has called us into something that is the polar opposite. He has called us to walk in the light, and how wonderful is that? John wrote in his first epistle, for if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You think about the, the tremendous toll that it takes upon a person to act in life, to be two people, to be one person in one environment, to be a completely different person in another environment. Acting is hard work. Uh, I'm, I, 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 people who are good actors and good actresses, they have my respect, make good movies, 
but they have my respect for what they're able to do, what they're able to capture, and then when they do these scenes and they're in freezing cold water in the ocean, they have my respect. I go into hypothermia just watching them do the things that they do or their doubles do, but the greater the distance between who I am and what I am in reality and what I'm presenting myself as day in and day out or in different environments, the greater that distance, that gap, then the more work that it takes. A life of deception is just one that takes a tremendous toll upon a person, not only uh, spiritually, but emotionally and mentally and physically. How much better to walk in the light, as John calls us into, and as Christ died and rose again in order for us to walk in that light, uh, this life and in this light, that no matter what environment I am in, this is who I am. This is what I am. I, I'm, uh, I'm walking in the light before you. I'm walking in the light before God, and it's a wonderful integrated place uh, to live. And that's the life that uh, Christ calls us to. This reality, the life that Christ has called us into, as Jesus spoke uh, to the woman at the well, is a life that allows us to worship God in spirit and in truth. And Jesus spoke to that woman and said, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the word truth means reality, to worship Him in spirit and in reality. What a wonderful thing it is to just live in reality before God. This is who I am and what I am, and this is what God has made me into as far as He's gotten along in, in what my life is, and to feel free to uh, represent that in openly and honestly and in the environment that I'm in. And then to worship God as Christ has called us to do so into a life in which we get to worship God with an unveiled face. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for we all with unveiled face, there's no veil over our face separating us from God, beholding as in a mirror the glory of, God, of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that is the image of God, from glory to glory, glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What a wonderful life it is that we live, no veil between us and God, and who we are is, is what we are and what we are before God, and God is conforming us into His image as a result. The passage teaches us that hypocrisy always leads to death, if not physical death, then a spiritual death, and the death of the life that God calls us to. It leads to the death, at least in part, of our relationship with God, the death of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and through our lives. And it's for this reason that Jesus, one of the things that He denounced most strongly in His whole public ministry was this thing called hypocrisy. And He denounced it continually in His public ministry and how it had become so firmly entrenched in the Judaism of His day. And He never denounces it more forcefully than in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. And many of you will realize the familiar refrain that goes on over and over and over again in the chapter where He pronounces, but woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, 
for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither, you neither go in yourself nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And this whole phrase of woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, it's repeated seven times. Seven is the number of completion in the Scriptures, and it represents in that chapter this complete denunciation of hypocrisy and what it will do to God's Word. And why does Jesus denounce hypocrisy? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I mean, He's always looking to infer, affirm and encourage. He never went into this, this kind of thing that He did in Matthew chapter 23 unless He felt mightily compelled in order to, to do that. And why does He speak so strongly against hypocrisy? I think one of the reasons is because once hypocrisy gets established within, say, a local church, then what that local church will reward, so it gets, when hypocrisy gets established within the local church and then gets established as what that local church will then reward and who it will promote into its positions of leadership and will be not truly spiritual people, but hypocrites, those who are the best actors. And the greater the hypocrite in that kind of a church, then the higher you will go. And since all of us, when we walk into any environment we're in, one of the first things we assess and discover is what's rewarded in this environment. Every job you've ever held when you got in there it might have taken you 30 minutes or three days or 30 days, but pretty soon you figured out what gets rewarded in this environment? We become aware of it very quickly, and then we begin to move toward that, that kind of thing. And because we very quickly learn what's rewarded in any environment that we're in, that, uh, that we're in hypocrisy is what is then learned in that kind of environment. That is what is required for advancement, not light, not honesty, not sincerity, not transparency, and that kind of a church is doomed as it relates to ever being a genuine influence for God. And when hypocrisy becomes widespread in a church, then the beauty and the innocence of the early church that we see in the latter portion of Acts chapter 4, all of it disappears because the Holy Spirit is then uh, quenched and the Holy Spirit is grieved. Very important to understand this, though, and understand what hypocrisy is not. Hypocrisy, and I am not being a hypocrite because I'm not perfect as a Christian. That is not hypocrisy. So don't think that that's what the passage is talking about or what I'm talking about. Uh, if you're not perfect in this room today, just come up and get prayer. You're just one prayer away from perfection. I'm just kidding. Join the crowd. It's not when realize that hypocrisy, it, it, what it is not additionally is I'm not a hypocrite because I'm tempted by sin or that I'm mightily tempted by sin. I'm not a hypocrite because I struggle with sin. I am not a hypocrite because I am a sinner, because I actually sin. That's not what this is talking about at all. Hypocrisy is acting. It is deliberately giving the appearance of being one thing outwardly while inwardly and privately I'm something very different, and deliberately with the intent to deceive, giving the appearance that I'm more spiritual than I really am.
and ultimately it always results in death, again as I said, if not physically then always in the death of our Christian witness, certainly of our peace and certainly of our joy, again because hypocrisy is a miserable life and a very, very high-maintenance life. Now, um, so we don't want to move, and I want to go into one other point, the cure for hypocrisy here before we close this morning, but we don't want to leave this passage because it is so dramatic of an event in the early church without allowing it to really speak powerfully to our lives, not in a condemning way that doesn't give us hope that we can turn from hypocrisy, but if we sit here this morning in the privacy of our heart, as I stand here, we'll do the same thing in my heart. If I am living a life of hypocrisy, if I have settled into that kind of a life where there's this great gap, I am one thing in a church environment or a home fellowship or in a spiritual environment or around the Christians at work, but I am something entirely different in all of the other environments in my life, then this is a very, very sobering passage, an important one to allow to do its work within our lives and allow the Lord to speak to us about the fact that this kind of thing is not to go on in our lives, not only because it's destructive for our own relationship with God, but it's also destructive for God's witness, for His reputation in the world, also destructive for the body of Christ and for any local church. And so the importance of realizing how important it is not to settle into this sin. And it's easy to settle into this uh, sin, and once that's been established, then to just stay there. This passage is so strong because it's intended to wake me up to this, even if I've fallen asleep into this kind of a life and I've settled down into it and become comfortable uh, in it. Important lesson of the passage and a strong lesson in the passage, and we want to embrace that and, and, uh, and, and embrace it fully. Now, the cure for hypocrisy is, number one, to recognize that it really is a device of the devil and that he uses to destroy our Christian lives and to destroy our witness. And our Christian witness is it's everything. Um, you and I will come <clears throat> ultimately to the end of our lives, <clears throat> excuse me, if the rapture doesn't occur first. And when we look back upon our lives as Christians who are filled with the Spirit and we are spiritually minded, we will not look back and say, boy, I, I wish I had eaten one more bowl of penne pasta than I did. Uh, I wish I had bought one more car than I had bought. None of those things, they're just, they aren't even in the room. They're, they're just, they become so remote uh, the closer we get to entering into eternity. What will matter to us at that time is, was God able to use my life as an influence? Did I spread His message? Did I spread His love? Was I an extension of His body within the world? And so, it begins by recognizing that this hypocrisy destroys what is most important to us and ought to be and one day will be in our lives as Christians. And then number two, if I'm currently living that kind of life, then to recognize it as a sin and to repent of it right here and now 
in this room on the spot. And the beautiful thing is that we can do that. The Bible says that if we confess our sins to God, then He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. The word confess there, if we confess our sins to God, it means more than just verbally saying something to that. God, I've settled into a life of hypocrisy. I see it for the detestable thing that it is. I don't want to live this life anymore. I repent from that, and I turn to you. That's what the confess is talking about. The word confess is more than verbal. In the Greek, it speaks of the fact that I see my sin the same way that God does. And so the importance of, number two, just stopping and saying, I recognize this now as sin. I confess it. I repent of it right here before I leave this room. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Again, John speaks of it as walking in the light, coming out of this very convoluted, very dark, uh, very complicated life that hypocrisy and acting requires to just come into the simplicity and the purity of light and the simplicity of life that is found in simply being the same person everywhere that I am. And then number three, to identify and repent of the sin that I'm hiding or I'm protecting with my uh, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is never a core sin. Uh, it's always a symptom sin. It's a secondary uh, sin that is committed in order to protect a deeper sin in my life. In other words, there's a secret sin in my life that I'm unwilling to repent of, and yet I still want to go to church and enjoy all of the other blessings of Christian fellowship. And the important thing to do is to find out what sin am I protecting with hypocrisy, address that secret sin, and then be rid of it. Uh, sometimes it can, uh, hypocrisy is born out of uh, just pride. I'm not engaged in the practice maybe of some secret sin, but the, in my pride and in my secure insecurity has me constantly portraying myself as something more than I am spiritually. And to just stop and ask the Holy Spirit for the will and the power to live my Christian life with a greater concern for how God sees me 24 hours a day than how uh, people see me and, and what uh, people think of me. Ananias and Sapphira were more concerned with what people thought of them in, in spiritual environments or any environment than how God saw them. Sometimes the sin can be selfish ambition, where I'm not content with the place or the position or the ministry that God has called me to in the body of Christ. I want something else and uh, something that's greater in my own eyes, a position that's going to get me noticed in the body of Christ, you know, and, and, and give me some greater recognition. And it's important to understand that God has made me, if God has made me a hand in the body of Christ, and sometimes that selfish ambition comes along, and I want to be an eye, I want to be an ear, I want to be a mouth in the imagery of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But to understand that our position and our place in the body of Christ is perfectly chosen for us by God. And when I understand that, then there's no need for me 
to try to strive for another position, to strive for some other place of prominence. No need to try to be something else or to be somebody else. All I need to do is just be myself in the place of my calling because nobody else can be you in the body of Christ. Only you can be you. Now, I know I'm going to make you cry and get all schmaltzy here in a moment. Sounds like I'm going to head into one of these, you know, pep talks of some kind. But it's the fact of the matter. Nobody else can be you in the body of Christ but you. So if we're all trying to be Billy Graham or we're all trying to be Chuck Smith or we're all trying to be whoever, then what a tremendous loss it is for the body of Christ. You're the only one that has the gift that God has given to you and the place that He's given you in the body of Christ that has your personality who's fearfully and wonderfully made in the way that He has made you. That's why Paul talks about the fact that each member is necessary in the body of Christ. It's not a really heavy way to kind of put it and all, but one time I was walking uh, years ago in the city of Sonoma and going through uh, these different shops and looking at different things because I like to look at stuff, right? I mean, it, um, Ellen knows. She went to Israel with me, and she, I remember she said to me, she said, I had no idea you were a shopper. Well, I am. And uh, all those channels on TV, it's a complete addiction for me and all. <laughs> Not that far. I, I own so many blouses and knee boots and different jewelry of all kinds. I mean, it's all we got. And uh, those little ham sandwich makers and all that stuff. But I do like to look, and I looked, like to look at creative things. But I, I saw in that shop it said, Be yourself, everyone else is taken. And it's a fabulous word, isn't it? fabulous word to us. And sometimes we're driven, or we, we, I won't say we're driven because it's a choice, but we make these decisions uh, to enter into a life of hypocrisy, this pretense in these environments, because we undervalue um, the beauty of God's call upon our lives and the place that He has given us in life to represent the body of Christ. Number four, in terms of the cure for hypocrisy, then the importance of determining by God's grace not to be a hypocrite or an actor in any area of my life. And there just needs to be that moment in time that, yes, Lord, this is where I am. Yes, Lord, maybe even this is a great tendency within my life, but I don't want to do it anymore in this room before I leave this room. I want to make a commitment by Your Holy Spirit and by Your grace to live a life that is sincere and honest. I want to be the same person everywhere I am in life and in every environment I find myself in life. I want to, in the words of the Apostle Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I want to be that person. Then number five, I think that sometimes we resort to hypocrisy when we come to think that uh, church is a place or spiritual environments or church environments, and this is so contrary to what Jesus intends His church to be, but sometimes we resort to hypocrisy 
when we come to think that church is a place where we have to portray general perfection in order to be accepted within that church or in order to not be judged by other people or to be looked down upon by other people. And while sometimes churches can be that, God is never like that, and it's important to understand that. God is more gracious than we will ever know. He is more gracious than we will ever learn in all of eternity. One of my favorite verses in this regard is in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul declares, but God who is in rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then here it is, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We will spend all of eternity as Christians exploring His grace, and we will never scratch the surface of it. That's how gracious God is. God knew that when He saved each of us that He was getting a project, a major project, and He knew that none of us will be perfect until we are one day safely in heaven. And God knows, as He describes through the psalmist in Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. And of Jesus we are told in Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. And let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is no need to hide or pretend when you have the heavenly Father that we have and when you have the Savior friend that we have, that we are accepted in the Beloved. And it is wonderful to realize that we do not have to live a life of hypocrisy and it will rob us of what Christianity really is and genuinely is, and the experiencing of its beauty and of its glory, which is God's desire for each one of our lives. I think the passage not only speaks to those of us who are Christians in the room today, but it has something to say to those who are not yet Christians as well. And how often each of us has heard through our lifetime of sharing with people the gospel, how often someone will say, I don't want to go to church. It's filled with hypocrites. And so the excuse of hypocrisy for not going to church. And I don't, I don't minimize the, the terrible damage and the stumbling block that might be, have been put in front of you by hypocrisy 
Maybe you grew up in a home that was a Christian home, or at least it was from all outward appearances, and, but what you saw of your parents week in and week out in terms of who they were at home and who they were at church, two entirely different things. You said, I want nothing to do with that. But it might interest you to know, and it's important for you to know, that God doesn't like hypocrisy any more than you do. And hypocrisy among even God's people is never to be used as an excuse for rejecting Christ. What Christ wants to save you into, and what He does save you into, is something entirely different than the life of hypocrisy. And you have to make your decision concerning Christianity and concerning salvation never on the basis of how poorly or how well I or any other Christian in the world represents Jesus or represents Christianity. You must make your decision solely on the basis of Jesus and what you see Him to be and to know Him to be in the Scriptures because only He is the faithful witness of God and only He is the faithful witness of Christianity. One of the beautiful things that we will sing one day as Christians in that heavenly sea, scene when we sing to the Lord is we will sing, faithful and true is, are you, Lord. He is the only one who is the faithful and true witness of Christianity. And so take all of those obstacles, any obstacle that I've placed in your life or anyone else has placed in your life, it's you, it's Jesus, you'll never find a fault within his life and come to Christ on the basis of him and him alone. And then when you become a Christian, then outshine every other Christian you have known by the power of the Holy Spirit. Take the hard lesson or the hard thing that you saw earlier in your life that so troubled you and say, I am determined to represent Christ and Christianity in a better way than it was to me, and then that background will be used in a powerful way, in a positive way in your life. But never allow any two-facedness or any hypocrisy in anyone who is a Christian to keep you from heaven. And pastors and other men and women are going to be up in front immediately after the service and they would love to pray with you to receive Christ into your life today and then enter to the glory of the life that you have been created for and that Jesus died on the cross to provide to you and rose again from the dead to, as a demonstration of the truth of all of it to you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, thank you for this passage. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you for the lesson of it. We thank you for the necessity of that lesson and of that message. 
And Lord, you know I have no interest at all in wailing upon your people or upon even one person. And you have no interest in doing the same either. But we pray as we stand before you for a powerful, powerful sense of your presence with us. And Lord, we pray that wherever any of us have made a decision to live two lives as a Christian, to enter into a life of hypocrisy, that you would bring a very firm and a very powerful and a very inescapable conviction of that fact. And that you would use that conviction, Lord, to draw us out of the darkness and all of the misery and all of the messiness, Lord, and misrepresentation of that life and to bring us back into the light and back into the simplicity of just being one person everywhere we are. And Lord, to be the kind of person that brings you glory and brings you pleasure, whether we are in a, alone in a room in our home or whether we are at church or whether we are at Rayleigh's or wherever we might be in life. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing us into a relationship with you that allows us to walk not in condemnation or fear of you, but to be able to walk in light and to walk in honesty and to behold your glory and to be changed. Thank you that there is no need for a moment's hypocrisy to enjoy the fullness of the Christian life or to receive the fullness of the work of your Holy Spirit in conforming us into yourself. And so we pray for our individual lives. We pray for every life in this room that this passage in the hands of your Holy Spirit would banish every single bit of hypocrisy from our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the Christian life that is described in your word and the beauty of it, Lord, as we worship you and experience you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.